Hello people of the podcast, welcome back to my channel and the art of seduction. We're on the dandy, so we'll just go through a reminder of what the dandy is, I, I suppose. Most of us feel trapped within the limited roles that the world expects us to play. We are instantly attracted to those who are more fluid, more ambiguous than we are. Those who create their own persona. Dandies excite us because they cannot be categorised and hint at a freedom we want for ourselves. They play with masculinity and femininity. They fashion their own physical image, which is always startling. They are mysterious and elusive. They also appeal to the narcissism of each sex. To a woman, they are psychologically female. To a man, they are male. Dandies fascinate and seduce large numbers. Use the power of the dandy to create an ambiguous, alluring presence that stirs repressed desires. So, we're going to look at the female dandy. When the 18-year-old Rodolfo Guglielmi emigrated from Italy to the United States in 1913, he came with no particular skills apart from his good looks and dancing prowess. To put these quantities to advantage, he found work in Thess Dansons, the Manhattan dance halls where young girls would go alone or with friends and hire a taxi dancer for a brief thrill. The taxi dancer would expertly twirl them around the dance floor, flirting and chatting, all for a small fee. Guglielmi, and it's spelt like this, G-U-G-L-I-E-L-M-I, Guglielmi, something like that, soon made a name as one of the best, so graceful, poised and pretty. In working as a taxi dancer, Guglielmi spent a great deal of time around women. He quickly learned what pleased them, how to mirror them in subtle ways, how to put them at ease, but not too much. He began to pay attention by means of his clothes, creating his own sort of dapper look. He danced with a corset under his shirt to give himself a trim figure, sported a wristwatch, considered effeminate in those days, and claimed to be a marquee. In 1915, he landed a job demonstrating the tango in fancy restaurants, and he changed his name to the more evocative Rodolfo di Valentina. A year later, he moved to Los Angeles. He wanted to try and make it in Hollywood. Now known as Rudolf Valentino Guglielmi, appeared as an extra in actually several low-budget pictures. He eventually landed a somewhat large role in 1919, the film Eyes of Youth, in which he played a seducer and caught women's attention by different... A seducer he was, his movements were graceful and delicate, his skin smooth and his face so pretty that when he swooped down on his victim and drowned her, Protests with a kiss, he seemed more thrilling than sinister. 
Next came the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, in which Valentino played the male lead, Giulio the Playboy, and became an overnight sex symbol through a tango sequence in which he seduced a young woman by leading her through the dance. The scene encapsulated the essence of his appeal, his feet smooth and fluid, his poise almost feminine, combined with an air of control. Female members of the audience literally swooned as he raised a married woman's hands to his lips or shared the fragrance of a rose with his lover. He seemed so much more attentive to women than other men did. But mixed in with this was delicacy and a hint of cruelty and menace. That drove women wild. Once a son was born to Mercury and the goddess Venus and he was brought up by the Naiads in the, obviously, Ida's caves, if you know what they are. In his features, it was easy to trace resemblance to his father and his mother. He was called after them, too, for his name was Hermaphroditus. As soon as he was fifteen, he left his native elves, and Ida, he left them behind, where he'd been brought up, and for the sheer joy of travelling, visited remote places. He went as far as the cities of Lycia, and on to the Carians, who dwell nearby. In this region he spied a pool of water, so clear that he could see right to the bottom. The water was like crystal, and the edges of the pool were ringed with fresh turf and grass, that was always green. A nymph, Salmasis, dwelt there. Often she would gather flowers, and if so happened that she was engaged in this pastime, when she caught sight of the boy, Hermaphroditus. As soon as she had seen him, she longed to possess him. She addressed him, Fair boy, you surely deserve to be thought a god. If you are, perhaps you may be Cupid. If there is such a girl engaged to you, let me enjoy your love in secret. But if there is not, then I pray that I may be your bride, and that we may enter upon marriage together. The Nightad said no more, but a blush stained the boy's cheeks, for he did not know what love was. Even blushing became him, his cheeks were the colour of ripe apples hanging in sunny orchard. Like painted ivory, or like the moon when, in eclipse, she shows a reddish hue beneath her brightness. Incessantly, the nymph demanded at least sisterly kisses, and tried to put her arms around his ivory neck. Will you stop? Will you please stop? he cried. I shall run away. I shall run away and leave this place in you. Salmasis was afraid. I yield to the spot to you, stranger. I shall not intrude, she said, and turning away from him, pretended to go away. The boy, meanwhile, thinking himself unobserved and alone, strolled this way and that on the grassy sward, dipped his toes in the lapping water, and then his feet up to his ankles. Then, tempted by the enticing coolness of the waters, 
He quickly stripped his young body off its soft garments. At the sight, Salmasis was spellbound. She was on fire with passion to possess his naked beauty, and her very eyes flamed with a brilliance like that, that of the dazzling sun. When his bright disk reflected in the mirror, she longed to embrace him then, and with difficulty restrained her frenzy. Hermaphroditus, clapping his hollow palms against his body, dived quickly into the stream. As he raised first one arm and then the other, his body gleamed in the clear water as if someone had a scathenavri statue or white lilies in transparent glass. I have won, he is mine, cried the nymph, and flinging aside her garments, plunged into the heart of the pool. The boy fought against her, but she held him and snatched kisses as he struggled, struggled, placing her hands beneath him, stroking him, unwilling and clinging to him. Now on this side, now on that, Finally, in spite of his efforts to slip from her grasp, she twined around him like a serpent when it is being carried off into the air by the king of birds. For as it hangs from the eagle's beak, the snake coils around his head and talons, and with its tail hampers his beating wings. You may fight, you rogue, but you will not escape. May the gods grant me this. May no time to come ever separate him from me, or me from him. A prayer's found faith with the gods, for as they lay together, their bodies were unitida. And from being two persons, they became one. As when a gardener grafts branches into a tree, and sees the two unite as they grow, and come to maturity together. So, when their limbs met, in that clinging embrace, the nymph and the boy were no longer two, but a single form, possessed of dual nature, which could not be called male nor female, but seemed to be at once both, yet neither. That is Ovid, Metamorphosis, translated by Mary M. Innes. However, let's go back to Valentino, and his most famous film, The Sheik. Valentino played an Arab prince, later revealed to be a Scottish lord abandoned by the Sahara as a baby, who rescues a proud English lady in the desert, then conquers her in a manner that borders, well, even rape, actually. When she asks, Why? Why have you brought me here? He replies, Are you not woman enough to know? Yet, she ends up falling in love with him, as indeed women did in movie audiences all over the world, thrilling at his strange blend of the feminine and masculine. In one scene, in the shake, the English lady points a gun at Valentino, and his response is to point a delicate cigarette holder back at her. She wears pants, he wears long flowing robes, and abundant eye makeup. Later films would include scenes of Valentino dressing and undressing, a kind of striptease showing glimpses of his trim body in almost all of the films he played. Some exotic period character, a Spanish bullfighter, 
an Indian Raja, an Arab Sheikh, a French nobleman, and he seemed to delight in dressing up in jewels and tight uniforms. In the 1920s, women were beginning to play with the new sexual freedom. Instead of waiting for a man to be interested in them, they wanted to be able to initiate the affair. But they still wanted the man to end up sweeping them off their feet. Valentino understood this perfectly. His off-screen life corresponded to his movie image. He wore bracelets on his arm, dressed impeccably, and reportedly was cruel to his wife and hit her. His adoring public carefully ignored his two failed marriages, and apparently his non-existent sex life. When he suddenly died in New York, August 1926, at the age of just 31, from complications after surgery, this was um, for an ulcer, nothing too major. The response was actually unprecedented. More than a hundred thousand people filed by his coffin. Many female mourners became hysterical and the whole nation was spellbound. Nothing like this had happened before for a mere actor. There is a film of Valentino's Monsieur Bouquier in which he plays a total fop a much more effeminate role than he normally played, and without his usual hint of dangerousness. This film was a flop. Women did not respond to Valentino as a swish. They were thrilled by the ambiguity of the man who shared many of their own feminine traits, yet remained a man. Valentino dressed and played with his physicality like women, but his image was still masculine, He wooed as a woman would woo if she were a man, slowly, attentively, paying attention to detail, setting a rhythm instead of hurrying by a conclusion. Yet, when the time came for boldness and conquest, his timing was impeccable, overwhelming his victim and giving her no chance to protest. In his movies, Valentino practised the same Gogolo's art of leading a woman on that he had mastered as a teenager on the dance floor, chatting, flirting, pleasing, but always in control. Now, I think it means gigolos, but it doesn't spell it right. It says gigolos, but it means that. Valentino remains an enigma to this day. His private life and his character are wrapped in mystery. His image continues to seduce, as it did during his lifetime. He served as a model for Elvis Presley, who of course, was obsessed with the star of the silence and also for the modern male dandy who plays with gender but retains an edge of danger and cruelty. So, that's the feminine dandy in a way, I guess, because though he's male, he's acting on a feminine side. Um... When we come back, we'll look at the masculine dandy and see the difference. But as you can tell, they live quite dangerously in a way, but they do remain mysterious throughout their life. And I think that's one thing that captures people, because once someone is mysterious, people tend to want to know more about them. And when they can't learn more about them, it just makes them more eager, right? But yeah, was eccentric as well. So that's part of it. Thank you for listening to this part of the dandy 
and many blessings.